Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa in my office. And as usual, I'm joined by Stephanie Carvin. And Stephanie, big day. Such a big day. Such a big day. Oh, my goodness. It is the day we have been waiting for, kind of the raison d'etre of our podcast. We can wrap up now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're going home. Thank you, listeners. Because C-59 has been granted, as of an hour ago, royal assent. Right. So, it has been, the queen herself flew over yeah. with her magic chariots and said, no, she didn't. No, it was, no, it was just like a general nodding. And she had some police officers escort her. That was about <laughs> it. But it has been signed. Uh, we are so happy that this has happened. And uh, because this is something, of course, we've been advocating for for some time. So um, I told the Senate, I said, look, I promised you a cake. And um, they haven't taken me up on the offer. But at some point, I'm gonna make a C59 cake because, like, this this requires a cake. Um, so, you know, I think we'll probably talk about that today in the podcast. The cake or C59? Both. Okay. Why not? I, well, I look forward I'm to the cake. And you're tired, I, I've, so. I've, I've seen pictures of your cakes, and and your cakes have produced international incidents in the past. So that's true. <laughs> so I look forward to this. DM me for more details. And so yes, it has the, the bill is now statute. It's no longer a bill; it's a statute. Uh, it that means that it is official law. Now it does As not mean. As we speak, mean, we're doing cyber warfare. <laughs> no, well that's it. It's not actually operative law at this I'm point. Disappointed because uh, as we discussed in our prior podcast. There are various uh, rules on coming into force. Some of the provisions come into force as of moments ago because upon royal assent, uh, they are automatically enforced. And so, for example, the CSIS threat reduction measure changes, amending the Bill C-51 formula and giving it a little bit more, in my view, constitutional rigor. Those come into force immediately. But some of the other features we've talked about repeatedly, as uh, we discussed in our prior podcast, require a separate order and counsel from the governor council, that is the federal cabinet, to bring them into force. And what has to happen there is to get all the dominoes in a row and make sure that the institutional apparatus is put in place uh, so that when you pull the trigger on coming into force, you have the means and and protocols in place to, to actually uh, use the tools properly. And so as we've noted, one of the prerequisites is the existence of the Intelligence Commissioner and the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency. In the absence of those bodies, it's very difficult to see how many of the new powers for CSIS and CSE could ever come into effect. And so those agencies have to be first constituted. Uh, and it's, I've been told it could take up to a year for those things to actually be put in place. Could be. I haven't heard I haven't heard discussion of this. Uh, as we also have noted in the past, uh, as we go into the election cycle, it'll be more difficult to get things done. Once the writ is drawn up, we're into a caretaker convention, and, and thereafter it becomes much more difficult to set up institutions uh, and uh, br- bring into force uh, various uh, provisions of law. Um, I think probably there'll be a certain urgency in getting the apparatus up and running. It's hard to see how CSIS won't have trouble, for example, in relation to some of the information, as we know from past CERC reports, that it continues to have in its possession in anticipation of the existence of the data set regime, how that can continue for much longer. And so I think there'll be a certain urgency to get the data set regime up. And I'm pretty sure that CSE is feeling a certain urgency to get their authorities up and running to take a full year on on those aspects. Well, frankly, I'd be a bit surprised, but but I'm just thinking because they need like a secretariat. You have to like have office space. You have to make sure that office space is secure. I mean, presumably, people have been thinking about this for a while. Yeah. So for the intelligence commissioner, so the intelligence commissioner is is essentially going to be the retooled office of the CSE commissioner. Oh, really? 
really? Okay. Um, and the the Enzira is is going to be the National Security Intelligence Review Agency is going to be the real retooled CERC. And so the the, the backbone is so there. So the office spaces are yeah, there. Yeah, I would assume like that, that okay. you know the core personnel are there, the office space is there. The transition but plan is there. Aren't they going to need more space? Oh, like, I, presumably. Because absolutely, because they're going to have to grow. So I, I think there's a difference between when they're going to start up and when they're going to be at full capacity. Right. right. And okay, so fair. one of the challenges for the Enzira, for example, is, look, you, you're a review body. In your former manifestation, you reviewed CSIS and CSIS alone. Now you've got an all-of-government national security remit. And so you have to build up competency in, in relation to other agencies while at the same time maintaining the traditional role in relation to CSIS. So to expect that overnight, once you stood up the Enzira, that all of a sudden they're going to turn around and do, let's say, a review of, oh, I don't know, Privy Council Office's Security and Intelligence Assessment uh, Group or CBSA or something like that, not having sort of grown that expertise and at the same time be capable of maintaining their existing role on, on CSIS, I think that's a bit unrealistic. So you're going to have to grow your reviews, and I think there's going to have to be some issue management and expectation management so that people don't have the sense that flick the switch, the Enzira is now existing, and therefore the Enzira can perfect. do everything yeah, at once. Yeah, 100%. It's just not going to work that way. You know what, though? I'm going to go ahead and call this a good problem. It's a good problem, right? It's a good right? problem. Yeah. We're here. We're like, look, we, we, I feel like you know we have, I don't know, climbed the mountain. We have swam the sea. We have iced the cake. I don't know what you want. There's two cherries years. on it. <laughs> two two years. years of our lives. Two years in a day. The bill was oh tabled God. two years and a day ago. I the have to 20th say that June 20th, 2017. Decent piece of legislation. There will be more things to fix. And, you know, we, we talked about that with the minister, actually. The fact that more changes are going to have to come down the line. And we can't always do it in this kind of once in a generation or once in a decade omnibus legislation. We need this kind of more regularized national security reform. And I think that wouldn't just benefit the actual law. I think it would actually benefit parliamentarians because they're going to have to be thinking about these issues, you know, in the same way that they think about, maybe not in the same way they think about the budget because that's always going to be front and center. But like if we have national security legislation, that's more regularized, they'll be more familiar with these issues. And right. I think that would only improve the conversation about national security in Canada. Yeah, so we compare very unfavorably, say, to our Five Eyes allies in terms of our willingness to have regular updates of our national security law. Also in weather, know, but that's a whole other story. Well, okay, so, uh, yeah, right. Uh, so, although it's sunny here for, for the first time in a long it's time. so nice. Uh, so the, the Australians, for example, have had, I don't know, it must be several score uh, pieces of legislation on terrorism alone in a different environment legislatively and the tradition's a bit different. UK has had probably dozens of pieces of legislation. Uh, the Americans are more infrequent, but um, nevertheless, there are more periodic updates in other jurisdictions. And I think that's probably advantageous because it means you don't uh, allow problems to accrue and create all sorts of conundrums that contort your operational uh, capacities and, and what it is you're doing. And so as we said to the minister, you know, this was the National Security Act of 2017. It's now 2019. We know there are other issues out there. There are there are issues that are ripe for legislative change, not least we've talked repeatedly about the Section 16 Foreign Intelligence Mandate of the CSIS, which is presently more or less... AKA on, the Bob from Mordor problem. The, which is the original impetus for the Bob from Mordor saga. And there the issue of the capacity of CSIS and, and to continue to operate in providing foreign intelligence in relation to electronic communications that may start in Canada but may transit a foreign jurisdiction 
it's pretty much non-existent because the act says that the foreign intelligence collection can only take place within Canada. And the federal court has said within Canada means what it says in, in relation to electronic communications. And that's a bit of a, well, that's a problem, right? And so there's there's that example, and there's probably a number of other examples we could come up with off the top I of our sure head. I'm sure we will. <laughs> and we will, where there's there really is a need of, for modernization. And we seem so timid in relation to updating our statutes that what happens is you end up with these antiquated statutes and you end up with a round peg, square hole, and you pound and pound and pound on the peg in the hopes that it'll eventually fit the hole through opinions predicated on opinions. These are legal opinions predicated on legal opinions. And then you get cases like ODAC, right, involving the... uh, The Operational Data Analytics Center, which was the the, uh, large metadata that was being collected and they they didn't just keep the uh, stuff that was useful for investigations. They also kept, you know, calls to the pizza store. Right. And things like that, which, which are really operationally irrelevant. Yes, uh, well, in this well, it case... Well, it, it, it although it depends on the context. Right. So but. in that case, the, the federal court said, look, we, there can be an operational justification for retaining some of this, but you don't have the statutory basis to do so. Yeah. Right. And so there's a problem of a mismatch between... And you can't this, take four years to fix that. Right. Well, in that case, 10 years. And, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the fact is, he's just, it, you know, it was put in a very bad position where, yeah. you know, it had to keep going, but didn't really have a lot of basis to do what it needed to do. Right. Um, I think, though, if I can... Mm-hmm. Say, I think the good news with C-59, and I, I'm pretty sure I've said this before on the podcast, but it's a point worth highlighting. The process that was used to create the bill, though, creates such a good model for future legislation in this area. I think regardless of whatever political party wins. The fact was they did massive consultations. They did. They wrote a report. They had a green paper. And then they had um, another bunch of reports that came out a- after these consultations. And, you know, if you talk to people at public safety, they'll tell you. We approach this national security legislation the same way we approach any other legislation. So healthcare, maybe not marijuana, but like any other kind of legislation that you would have out there, I don't know, about the forestry industry or whatever. And that's a good thing because national security shouldn't be exceptional, right? I think when you make it exceptional, it can tend to lead to bad law. We should follow the norm as much as possible. We should follow the normal, regular, regularized legislative process in order to to do this, and that involves consultations, bringing people on board, talking to stakeholders, and then creating the legislation based off of, you know, probably your political priorities, but also perhaps what you found, and, and adjusting your legislation in such a way that you're addressing some of the concerns that people are raising. This is the model going forward. So you know what? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's unfortunate it was an omnibus bill. I would hope that in the future, um, governments do do these more regularized bills that we have do see in our other Five Eyes partners. But in terms of a model for going forward, I, I think this was was really good. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, not the, so the, the the one the one cloud in that sky is the, how consumptive of time those lengthy consultations can be and end of resources and not just but if the bills if, the, if it's less of an omnibus right. bill you don't need as exactly much. and so something that's a little bit more tailored and and so doesn't need quite as grandiose a consultation process I, I think what i would single out from the way that this operated is a greater understanding including on my part as to what the policy ill that the government was trying to cure with some of those provisions now some of them were just straight lines from c51 you know they 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 did X and C51. It wasn't necessarily the best architecture for accomplishing uh, objective Y, and so now we're going to come up with a different solution. And it was very helpful, I think, to have um, more detailed conversations with, pe- with people who had been involved throughout as to what exactly they were trying to do with C51. Because as you may recall, the conversation, the policy conversation, was effectively non-existent yes. in 2015. Well, that's what I mean. It, wasn't, it, was, it was exceptional legislation. It wasn't 
regularized. Right. Well, yeah. Or so normalized. It was nor- normal legislation, but ramrodded in a very peculiar way. The parliamentary process was ugly, um, and uh, and in the result, it, it generated animus, and in fact, generated an understanding of what was in C51 that didn't line up exactly with what was in C51, there's still actually that sense that, that C51 did all these things that it didn't really do, but it became part of the mythology. Um, and so that's the risk, right? You end up with collateral reputational damage because you don't actually have an intelligent conversation yeah. about the policy objectives. And, that, and so C59 was a completely different so, kettle you know, of fish. So, we're going to, like, make security legislation great again. Miss <laughs> Laga. <laughs> right. um, right. um, and so, so the only sad note to this, I would say, is uh, the unfortunately the legislation that was going to impact the RCMP and the CBSA, giving them kind of oversight bodies, is not going to pass the Senate. It's just they've ran out of time, unfortunately. Although I got to be honest with you, like if I told my boss that I just ran out of time and couldn't finish my teaching, I don't think it would end very well for me. But apparently, this is something you can do in the Senate. Yeah. So, C C C ninety eight was the legislation, and so there there there's interim boards that are put in place. Presumably, those interim boards can continue until this legislation is put in place. Mm. But it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is too bad. I, that that came very late in the in the Parliament, and so C ninety eight was January, was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was tabled very late, and and that I, I'm not quite sure why it took so long. I mean, the recommendations. The bill itself, in terms of what it accomplished, was pretty much a straight line from what Mel Cap, the former clerk of the Privy Council, recommended in his uh, report to the Minister of Public Safety. So I'm not quite sure why it then took so long to sort of convert that into legislative language. The downside is that CBSA, so RCMP will continue to have the RCMP Civilian Review and Complaints Commission for purposes of complaints against it. Its review function in relation to non-national security matters will remain intact. The national security uh, matters in terms of review will move over to the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency. But the CBSA, for CBSA, what will we have? For CBSA, we will have the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Right. Who Who can only look at national security mandates. And the National Security Intelligence Review Agency, again, their remit will be uh, exclusively national security. There will not be a complaints body, nor will there be a review, a specialized review body uh, above and beyond uh, the national security space. And that's unfortunate because, you know, especially at a time when uh, the powers of CBSA have continuously been kind of ramped up, there's been some staffing issues and stuff like this. And I think uh, they really do need some oversight in the non-national security space, which is a little outside the remit of this podcast, but worth noting. Right. So uh, a necessary evolution eventually, and uh, it actually harkens back to the Iraq Commission. The Iraq Commission in 2006 recommended that CBSA be folded into the RCMP for purposes of, not institutionally, but for review purposes, the same body that does review for the RCMP do review for CBSA. And in the national security space, we've accomplished that with the NZERA, but not in relation to anything else that it might implicate CBSA. Now, they're still subject to the Privacy Commissioner and the Auditor General, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, for other uh, activities they might engage in that, that don't fall within privacy, for instance, I mean, who are you going to call, right? So there's, there's, I'm pretty sure there's an internal process, but there's no independent review or complaints function. So we'll wait and see what happens with that in the future. Next so, government. Next government or next parliament at any rate. So uh, what are we going to talk about above and beyond C-59 then, Stephanie? There's something beyond C-59? <laughs> right, I was well, just going to pack up well, and go home. That's right. Well, that's the end oh, of the podcast. Well, Thank okay. you for being listeners. Well, the other thing that happened today, uh, and we we're recording on Friday, is uh, the CSIS released its uh, new public report. Right. And the first report in what, how many years now? The last one was in... I think it was 2016, actually. 
I may be mistaken. I think you're right. Yeah. Oh, and, wait, and, wait, wait. And, uh, that, and that was, people may recall or may not recall because it sort of appeared and disappeared very quickly. This was a web-based report that included a video from the then director and then... It looked like a hostage video. Yeah, it was not a... It was and not there was a, no substance, was no a, PDF. Yeah. It was it was a, it, not a good choice. It was not uh, It was not a very impressive report and there was very little substance. And so there the last report... There was two threats discussed. It was terrorism and cyber. Right. And that was it. And that's... Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, so you'd have to go back really, I think, to 2014 before you get a halfway decent uh, CSIS uh, biannual report, I suppose it is, every two years. And, and well, it's triannual in some cases, yeah. which is also ridiculous. This used to be an annual report. I don't understand why it can't be. I mean, look, not that much changes, but actually, if you look at it every three years, every two to three years, there's serious changes from the last report, which, although I'll still consider the last report a bit of an anomaly, but even going before that. So there's, there's quite a lot in it. I thought so, too. I thought it was... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not that earth-shattering, but there are some things in here that are uh, substantial. Now, I, I thought for the purpose of the podcast, I'll focus on the threat uh, piece, and then you can talk about all the boring stuff. Okay. That's my job. Right. Okay. So it starts off with a discussion of terrorism. And I found this a little strange, a little disappointing, and I'll explain why. But, um, you know, it's because, and I've talked about this before, in 2018, David Vigneault, uh, the director of CSIS, gave a speech. And it was really remarkable because, you know, he said, yes, terrorism remains the primary threat to public safety, but really the kind of larger strategic threat is foreign influence and espionage. And I almost fell off my chair when I heard him say that. Now, of course, he was tailoring his comments to the business community. So I think he really was trying to play that up. But uh, it's, it's, it was, I thought, wow, could this really mark a shift in what we're going to see in the next public report? And the answer to that question is not really. The number one threat is clearly still terrorism. It, it's more in line with pretty much every other assessment that's come out of the service since at least 2001. And it basically, it's, it names terrorism as, quote, the number one national security threat to public safety in Canada. And he says, of course, that foreign influence and espionage continue to persist and pose long-term strategic challenges to Canada. In my view, this is a bit less than what was said in December 2018. I don't know if that was intentional or not because of, of some of the attention that that got and maybe because I was freaking out on Twitter, but it, it, it it's less impactful, I think. Um, so I was expecting maybe to see more of a change in this year's public report. And it's also interesting because the United States has for years now declared cyber and cyber espionage to be more of a, a threat to national security. But in Canada, we still kind of stick to that terrorism piece. Now, here's the thing. The, this assessment is actually based on the intelligence that the service is collecting and the operations that it's conducting. And I don't have access to that. So may, there could be a, an uptick in domestic terrorism investigations, other things like that that could be driving this. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, you know, CSIS, again, is responsible to the intelligence priorities process, which is outlined in the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians report that came out earlier this year. But I was, I was a bit, does it sound weird to say I was almost a little bit disappointed? I was kind of hoping for like a really big kind of punchy foreign influence and espionage section. And mm. it really wasn't there. The foreign influence and espionage section are really stuff we've heard before. And it, it's like, it's good. It's important that they're saying it. Uh, the one thing that was interesting was, one, that stuff wasn't even talked about in last year's report. Right. And it's yeah, um, 2016 it's a 2016 report, the, the hostage video uh, report. So it's good that they actually have their own sections. And the other thing, too, is that it's actually far more detailed 
than previous years. So the last reference I could find to SOEs was in, I believe, the 2012-2014 the report. Um, and they basically described the threat of state-owned enterprises, for example, as opaque or an instrument that could, quote, be used to advance state objectives that are non-transparent or benefit from a covert state support such that com competitors may be disadvantaged and market forces skewed. Now, this is actually given a lot more detail in this report. It's not as detailed and, again, I think as impactful as the director's 2018 speech, but there's a little bit more, more detail here about how uh, SOEs actually are operating and what is the service is concerned with. So that was a good thing, too. When it comes to terrorism, I mean, there's, of course, the foreign fighters thing. Um, Islamic State is still considered the primary domestic and international threat. I mean, there's the shout out to Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah. But what is interesting in this report that we haven't seen before, at least in my, to my mind, was a significant statement on far-right extremism uh, that included a statement on extremist misogynist views. Uh, it described the 2014 Moncton shootings as far-right terrorism, which I'm not sure has been done before. Uh, I, I can't think of it to my mind, but uh, perhaps someone can, if, if, if it was, if someone please just send me a DM or something. So that was uh, that's a big step forward. The other thing here that is going to be certainly very controversial was the uh, terrorism that targets India. Right. They don't use the, the Sikh word. Well, extremism at any rate. Yeah, and that was kind of interesting because of this. Well, first of all, there was a lot of flack that came out of the public report on the terrorist threat uh, that we've talked about in the podcast before. But what's interesting here is not only do they name it, they say they've seen a, a small increase. And what's interesting about that now is that because India has put pressure on Canada to actually look at this issue a bit more, so you're seeing more because you're looking for it. Or have the kind of the investigations that have been looking at this suddenly actually noticed more activity in the sphere, possibly because Modi is kind of a nationalist mm. and it may be actually inspiring this kind of activity. That's not clear, but it was a far different discussion of terrorism, I think, than, than we've seen in other years, too. So that's interesting. And my final observation, if I can, and I appreciate that I'm going into a monologue territory here, <laughs> is the going dark problem is mentioned three times in this report. It's mentioned in the director's report. And so a reminder, that's the shorthand we use, uh, have been using for encryption. Yeah, basically the fact that uh, terror suspects are smart enough to use Telegram and, and apps that encrypt their messages, which makes it harder to intercept and then detect uh, threat-related activity. So there's, in, in several sections, uh, well, three sections, to be honest, they, they talk about this going dark problem. And, you know, if there wasn't an election coming up, to me it would suggest that the government is thinking about policy in this area. And what else is interesting is, and I think we've talked about this to a certain extent on this podcast before, there's no consensus in the government of Canada as to how to actually deal with this problem. Um, if you talk to CSE, I, I couldn't find anything online to, to back me up on this, but if you talk to CSE people, they will say weakening encryption is, makes our job harder, right? If we actually make it easier for people to access information, it's going to be harder for us to protect information overall, and that's our actual mandate. But the RCMP takes a very different view. They think there should be some kind of lawful access provision. And I think the way it's discussed in this report, the CSIS report, actually puts the service closer to the RCMP camp. Mm. That's not surprising because they both they're have collectors. kind of similar... They're collectors and they want that information. But that was... As far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of any other statement about going dark. They don't advocate anything, 
they're kind of just talking about the dilemma as it is, but the way they talk about it is not dissimilar from that of the RCMP. And that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's not that surprising in the sense that if you commit one way or another, you're likely to raise the ire of of uh, some group or another, right? And so this has always been a thorny problem. The lawful access issue has been the third rail in national security legislation for over a decade now. No one wants to touch it. But it, that, that equivocal position, I think, we heard when we spoke to the minister, because we did ask him about going dark, and he, he was fairly equivocal, I thought, in terms of, of not wanting to commit one way or another to, to a solution. And part of that is that there's not really a a perfect technical solution. There's not, no. I mean, basically, you're talking about, a, a, at best, you're probably talking about a lawful hacking power um, for a country like Canada, which is not going to be the home to these, except perhaps BlackBerry of, of tech companies uh, who have uh, access to the encryption and decryption capacity, even if they have that at present, which increasingly is rare. Uh, so there isn't a pe- perfect technical solution, and so that makes it difficult to come up with a legal tool. Uh, Leah West and I are on the cusp of completing uh, and have actually completed a draft on the status of, of law and uh, encryption in Canada. Um, and it's there's lots of little workarounds. None of them are really designed for this purpose and none of them really address a technical problem because law can't fix That's quite common in this problem. space in national yeah. security in Canada. So I, I agree with you overall in terms of the report. It, it's a full-spectrum report, which is more than I would say about past CSIS reports um, in the sense that it deals with a full-spectrum Oh, of, absolutely. I mean, of, like of in threats. terms of what we saw the last time around, this yeah. is... I, and, and that's look, probably think, the tra- changing in a threat environment as much as the, the sort of a preoccupation with being a little bit more well-rounded in these reports. I think, I think it's not just that, but I mean, look, I think the last time they did it, I think it was a genuine attempt to be more accessible, but it just wasn't... <laughs> didn't actually happen. Yeah. Well, even so, relative to 2014, there's there's more threats here that's that are discussed. The, oh yeah. The, the terrorism stuff has been static for a long time, but all the other things that are coming into this, the economic side of the agenda, which you've talked about, the idea of foreign-owned enterprises uh, who control Canadian strategic Canadian assets, that 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 sort of conversation really hasn't been part of national security until comparatively recently. The There are stats, I mean, I'm always looking for the hard data, right? This is one of my complaints for a lot of reports. And there are numbers here, which I actually found very useful for security screening, for example. Right. There are some numbers that give you some sense as, as to the volume of the work, as well as numbers in relation to the the personnel issue um, and the human resources issue within within the service, which, you know, one of it our first po- for podcasts was, yeah. was on the, the lawsuit in relation to the Toronto office. And and the controversy over what was some, some terrible human resource practices, racism and sexism, um, and the, you know, so that to address that front and center in this report is is an obvious nod to that preoccupation. Uh, and then you know, I, I scroll to the back, and this is one of the things I've been trying to track. And we've talked one of our first podcasts, perhaps our very first podcast, we talked about the 2017 minister direction on information sharing yeah. that may be caused caused by or or the, may cause a mistreatment and. In the past, through ATIP, I've been able to acquire uh, hard data or some hard data on exactly how CSIS processes these sorts of circumstances in the vetting process and the numbers involved. I haven't been so successful with recent ATIPs. And so I turn to the standard report and I flip it open and what do I find? Well, there's a description of the internal vetting process. And then during 2017-2018, the internal vetting process considered a total of four cases where there was a substantial risk as defined in the ministerial direction of maltreatment. And two of these requests were subsequently referred to the CSIS director for decision, one of which was approved after measures were taken to mitigate the risk, and then one of which was turned down. So that's the kind of hard number 
that I think is really important because it gives uh, some senses to the scale of, of these sorts of... far less than I would have thought. Yeah, it's a little bit actually lower than it was in 2015. In 2015, there were more. Um, and so it's a fairly small number. And I would think, you know, so I'm going to speculate wildly and assume that uh, the, there's an internalization of these considerations within the service more so now than, say, five or six years ago. And so that means that they don't reach the point of requiring this deliberation by this this uh, more high-level board and then go to the director because they get shut down earlier. But that's entirely... But also I think we've seen maybe internationally uh, less, uh, you know, with the fall of the Islamic State, fewer foreign fighters and things like this. I Could actually be. think that that would be another reason potentially because that would be maybe one reason for information sharing. Right. Um, that, that, you know, you would worry about. If there's fewer Canadians going overseas, then... Maybe you don't need to share as much information. Right. Um, to hot with, spots where there might be a concern about the consequences of sharing that information. Exactly. Right. So yeah. so there you go. The public report. Um, it, it's okay. It's okay. Well, it's I, better I, than last time. So I'm, we're going to invert because I'm, I'm typically the hard marker. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's better than okay. I, I, In part because I'm writing my book right now. I'm trying to finish my national security law book with, with Leah West. And there's some stuff in here that's going to be useful for me. And that, I can't say that about every report that I've read. Uh, from the surface in the past. So th- th- this is, I find, uh, above average, and certainly so. Because um, I'm, I'm thinking B. I'm going to give it a B plus. <laughs> it's still a hard marker. <laughs> but I'm in law school, I'm telling you. B plus is, you know, like that's above average. Man, <laughs> man. If this is, if you think that's a useful report and you give it a B plus, God help the report writer. <laughs> God help them. I mean, and the only reason for that is, I, like I said, I, there just wasn't, there's some new sections and they're talking about new things. So I think that's really good and really positive. I just think that they could have gone just a little bit further in talking about the economic national security side, even though it's um, a very controversial. And I think they could have been a little bit more uh, aggressive in talking about the foreign influence issue. Maybe they're concerned about doing that before an election. So I understand it. But look, by, by all means, like, look, I'll give them like an A for effort. <laughs> a for effort. Well, because you know what? You didn't have... A, a video of someone looking like, you know, they're, they're, please, you know, like they're blinking some kind of coat at you. So that's, that's good. Well, okay. So if we start with that low base, but, but, you know, I'm, I, what I'm be curious to see going forward is as we know, and as, as was discussed when we had the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, we had representatives uh, come on our show. One of the things they're working on now, it's a matter of public record, is on foreign, influenced activities um, in the next annual report. and so, Which actually should come out before the election. Well... Is that not what they were well, talking? Well, remember the, what the statute says. The statute says that the prime minister has, I believe, 30 sitting days in terms of... Tab- so it's going to be the next prime minister. Well, it'll whether or not there's a next prime minister is yet to be decided, but it will be the next parliament. That, that releases this report. It'll be tabled in the next parliament. So we might not see this in December. Unless, unless we have a summer... Well, I don't know how it would work if Parliament came back into session, which may well happen, actually, because of the NAFTA NAFTA 2.0 legislation, which may have to go through and hasn't yet. So um, at any rate, so we're not going to see this anytime soon because Parliament has to be in session before the clock starts ticking. Well, what will I do with that reports, Craig? Well, we'll find out. What will I do? We'll probably have some federal court cases. Oh, so my point about foreign, so the point about foreign interference is that if the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians plows that terrain and establishes what can be said about these issues in a public way, 
that may ease the burden for the security services to talk more openly about this. But right? I think it's almost the reverse because what I found really interesting was that, you know, the CSC has actually named Russia in its report, hmm. um, and, you know, in its its threats to democratic institutions and, and other cyber threats. So, you know, Russia was named like in four different cases, I think. Um, you know, we've accused China now for really in the most... You know, right. It was right in the wake of the whole um, Huawei arrest. But um, you know, there's no discussion of China in here. They still won't say those words. Right. And I actually felt, you know, you know, even though the so there's inconsistency because there yeah. was naming as well in the in the Enzicop uh, report. Miracle. Which I understand because yeah. they're politicians and, and I think they feel more free to say those yeah. things. But at the end of the day, um, you know, and, and that's what, to me, gave that report an A, frankly. Right. But I, th- I think, you know, if you're, if you're other organizations. Now, to be fair, the CSIS's mandate isn't in the business of attribution, right? right? Cyber attribution is going to be done by the CSE in most cases, I think. So maybe, you know, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to stick to our lane here. But why why wouldn't you say the names? Even because it's now out everywhere. So so f- you're saying that the difference, the in terms of a place to improve, would be more detail. A little bit more, you know, and and you know, I pity the poor analysts that stuck writing these things. But um, you know, you have an opportunity once every three years to communicate to Canadians why you do the things you do and why you care about them, and and that's a really important thing. And I think, you know, it's not writing public reports is not considered a prestigious job. Um, You know, everyone kind of rolls their eyes at it, but it's it's so important. And, you know, it's actually inspired my own writing and that, you know, I'm I'm trying to write a book about national security threats, which is how I'm going to spend my summer vacation or what's left of it. Um, So I would I would like a little bit more. Yeah. Like, I mean, the 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 economy section, the Ford influence section, they were they were pretty thin. So that's that's that explains the B. But look, I mean. This is it, it. It actually even looks nicer than previous years. <laughs> so you know, I, I don't want to yeah. fault them for that. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So what have we got left? Um. Well, I thought we could talk about some books we're reading. Okay. Uh, quickly. What yeah, are because plans? we probably aren't going to be able to meet again until after Canada Day, and so some people will will be off on holiday, and so not because people necessarily read anything we suggest, but <laughs> we thought this would be because we did this last year, you may recall, just before uh, the summer holiday season really arrived, and since everyone's going to be inside in front of a roaring fire wearing sweaters this summer, there's opportunity to read. Uh, so, what are you reading and or planning to read that you'd like to flag? So um, right now I'm finishing up uh, David Sanger's The Perfect Weapon. Now, David Sanger is the New York Times columnist. He does a lot of national security reporting. Um, It's it's interesting. I actually last uh, or uh, last year and this year he was reporting some stuff and I was kind of critical because I'm, I'm not sure it was right. He was suggesting that Canada had agreed to ban Huawei when that's not at all the understanding mm. that I have. Uh, but that being said, it's the book the book itself is like a really useful refresher of how we got to where we are. And it's it's interesting, you know, it, it kind of starts off, it, you know, it's talking all about, you know, some of us barely remember the Sony hack by North Korea. It talks a lot about, um, you know, Stuxnet. That was, was kind of one of the first operations. Um, but it, it also talks about how, you know, the Americans have, have tried to adapt to this new era. And, and that's really interesting in and of itself. And actually what was really weird is the book starts off by talking about Andy Osmet, who is someone I lived with in the UK. <laughs> uh, and he went on to D&D doing a lot of cyber work. And I was, I was like, oh my God, Andy. Um, 
So that was kind of a weird thing, too, uh, to, to see how well he's doing. Uh, so it, it's, it's a good book. So I think I still prefer, um, there's a book that came out a bit earlier. It's called Dark Territory by Fred Kaplan. It's yeah, not new. That, that is such a good book. Oh, yeah. my God. It's like a novel. Um, I, I still think that's probably, my. It, 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 you know, the, the subtitle is The Secret History of Cyber War. That's still probably my favorite book on this topic. Uh, but the Sanger book is good, and it's more current. Yeah, that's and it's so, more, definitely more current, yeah. right? The Kaplan so, books covers more history. Yeah, and so I think, you know, read both of those books together. It's an interesting comparison. Um, and the, my kind of summer treat to myself, and I'm such a nerd for saying this, but I'm reading The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un, um, <laughs> which is a book by Anna Fifield, who I've been following on Twitter for some time, and she does great reporting on North Korea. And uh, her book actually was in the news quite a bit because it revealed that Kim Jong-un's brother, the one who was assassinated in the airport with some kind of insane chemical weapon. Um, I think it's sarin. Yeah, it, which is crazy. Um, but the, uh, you know, that's North Korea sarin. for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the new hot thing. The Apparently, there, there's allegations that he was a CIA asset or agent or you know someone who gave them information. Mm. So uh, and, and that comes out of this book. So I want to read it also because I'm just fascinated by North Korea. It's... It's, it's not really a scholarly pursuit of mine. I'm just kind of interested in the country and how you can exist as a country like that's so isolated in this day and age and and, and try and monitor that. And, and how Kim Jong-un, who's this very odd character, to put it mildly, has uh, governed so differently from his father and, 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 and successfully, unfortunately, because he's a bit of a maniac. So it, that's the book I'm looking forward to reading this summer, By the Pool, North Korea. <laughs> Great. Uh, so I'll talk about one I just finished, one I'm almost finished, and one that I'm looking forward to reading. Sounds good. So, and they're not all strictly national security, but they do have national security links. So I, I did f- finish reading George Packer's book, Our Man, uh, about Richard Holbrook. Uh, oh, it's right. the new okay, biography yeah. of Richard Holbrook. And R- Richard Holbrook is this kind of divisive, colorful figure with this sort of checkered reputation. Uh, and the book is very interesting in how it approaches this, because biographies tend to be sort of they can be critical, but they tend to be fairly laudatory of their subjects. This one is written like a novel, right? And so Richard Holbrook's the the key protagonist, but it's written in a in a very unusual style, as if the where the the narrator is almost narrating a story of Richard Holbrook. And so I found it a fascinating. Uh, but it doesn't cross over too much into not really. I didn't think like, so. I thought it was actually quite quite good in the sense that it. I think it captured the man in his in his contradictions. Uh, so I, I, in part because it's so unique in the way it was drafted, I I, I would single it out as, as worth worth reading. Okay, I the, read. I remember reading Richard Holbrook's book to end a war. Right. Yeah. In, which, in the nineties. Right. Yeah. So. He, yes, of course he was famous for the the Dayton Peace Agreement. Accord, right? Yeah. And that ended the war in, in Bosnia. The one I'm almost finished, and this will resonate with you, is by William Hitchcock, who was the person who was with us in Israel from the University of Virginia, and his biography on Eisenhower, the age of Eisenhower. Oh, that's fascinating. And it's a, okay. it's a really, you know, it's a classic biography, and it's a good one. And it, and it talks about things that have been of long interest to me, the Suez Crisis in particular, and other events associated with the Eisenhower period. And it, it's not a history, it's not a period of history that I, I, can, I consider I have a close knowledge of. And so it's a, it's a nice portrait of the man, but also his time. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite enjoying that. I'm almost finished that one. And then the one that uh, I've picked up to read sometime soon, uh, Noah Weisbord, who's a, a colleague at, the, at Queens, I believe, uh, in the law school there, uh, his book on the crime of aggression. Oh, 
Oh, wow. So the International Crime of Aggression, which is now within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, at least for those states who take the further step of accepting it, and uh, obviously uh, an issue uh, of some notoriety, uh, since the crime of aggression was something that was prosecuted in Nuremberg, and then sort of efforts to define what it meant took the better part of the Cold War until there was a breakthrough with the International Criminal Court not so long ago, about a decade ago. And so the crime of aggression as a legal instrument and and what utility it might have, I'm looking forward to learning a lot more because actually it's quite a confusing issue. Well, Uh, good thing there's no international aggression anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) we'll have to have a conversation (laughs) about the Iranian situation. I can't imagine why we're not invited to more parties. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I I read other things. and the crime of aggression. I read other things. These these are just interesting things that might interest our listeners. crazy guys. It's just, it's amazing. Anyways. All right. So that's that's it for, for now. Uh, um, I'm hoping to be back next week. Uh, Tom Juno has uh, our colleague uh, here at the University of Ottawa and uh, Intrepid Podcast blogger. He He's agreed to, to come on and talk about all things Middle East. So hopefully we can make that work while you're away. And, you know, while, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep the shop in place while you're uh, off. Is it to Virginia? Yeah, it's, so it's a project that John Norton Moore at the University of Virginia Law School is running an effort to create uh, a codification of the standards for use ad bellum, the use of force, use of force in international law. Again, why aren't we invited to more parties? Yeah, so uh, so I'm my my particular little chapter. It's actually a, a quite an impressive consortium of people, uh, people I know by reputation that I've never had the honor of meeting. So I'm quite excited to go down and. My little piece, not surprisingly, because of the work I've been doing on the Caroline, is on on the question of of anticipatory or preemptive self-defense, depending on what you want to call it. Actually sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting exercise. I think reconciling, because uh, I'm, I'm looking at the, I've, I've read some of the papers and in reconciling the papers and coming up with a common approach, because this isn't this a classic, this is not a classic academic exercise where everyone gives their view and go home. This is an, ap- op- this is an opportunity for us to, to, to create essentially a consensus uh, amongst very senior members of, of the international law community uh, in the academic world. And I think it'll be a very interesting exercise. And I, I wonder what kind of divisions there might be between, say, the Americans and the Europeans. <laughs> no, so. Well, just remember the advice my, my British PhD advisor once gave me, which is that in America, never eat anything larger than your own head. <laughs> and on that note. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, everyone. Stephanie will be back uh, next week, and uh, hopefully we'll be back together as a team sometime soon after that in July. Sounds like a plan. And from my perspective, uh, happy Canada Day. Yeah, well, you know, I'll see you, so I'll, I'll wish you happy Canada Day later. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>